the first time I met George was two days after I, I started uh, at EMI Studios, as it was then, not Abbey Road. And George was bringing this new band in called, called The Beatles. And that was the, uh, their first proper recording session, which was, two, as I said, two days after I'd started. And I, and I said, well, can I sit in on the session? Because I was, had to learn the ropes. And I sat on, in, on the session and, and watched what was going on. And uh, so that was my first meeting with George. You know, we had a great sort of uh, rapport going because we both obviously realised we both had the sort of same sense of humour. On our sessions, there wasn't a lot of spoken word between the two of us because we both knew, you know, um, what each, each other was thinking or what each other required at that time. And it just, it was an odd, odd relationship, you know, but it worked really, really well. Jeff Emmerich was a child when we started. Mm. And I said, if you think you can take it, I'll toss you in the deep end. And he thought he could take it, so he did. He jumped in. And the first track he did was Tomorrow Never Knows. It was a question of telling them what I wanted and getting it. And then eventually, after not very long, they knew what I wanted, so I didn't have to say much. And to this day, I can work with Jeff, and I shall know that what I'm getting is what I want. I wouldn't. We, Jeff and I can work together on an album. And we don't need to say much to each other. But we know he knows what I'm thinking, and I know what he's thinking. It's just kind of empathy to get on with mm. people. Would you stick purely to the music and leave him to sort of? I always have, the I I've always done that. I think mm. the role of a produ producer, a musical producer and a technical engineer in complete compatibility is a very good one. I think it's much better than a, than a producer stroke engineer mm. who's worrying whether that note's in tune at the same time as worrying what the spill is like on the, on the drum mic. Mm. I don't think you should, be able, should have to do those two things together. I think that two good brains are better than one in, if they're working well together. Mm. Uh, but in a case of a producer who doesn't work well with an engineer, then I take back what I said. But we did work well together. And I would only override, if I didn't like something that technical, I mean, if I, if I thought I was getting the wrong kind of vocal sound, I would ask him to change the mic or whatever. You know, there would be those overriding things. But because we knew each other so well, I would know what he would tend to do. And he would explain to me, he said, I've got a new thing I want to try out. And I'd say, OK, let's listen to it. And I'd give him the judgment on it, that kind of thing. Mm. And it eventually got to a cooperation where he would say to me, uh, have you noticed that um, a harmony of George's doesn't, doesn't quite work? He would overspill into my area sometimes. Yes, yes. But I did, that was fine. That was the way we cooperate, and that was good, mm. good for all of us. My name's Eric Taros. I'm Richard Buskin. I'm Alan Cozen. This is John Palando. I'm Craig Bartok. Beatles, naked. It is shining.
first track engineered by Jeff Emmerich once he became the Beatles chief engineer in 1966 and what a start eh? If he had just kind of been a 20 year old kid that had been hired by EMI and on his first day on the job being intimidated beyond intimidation by meeting the Beatles for the say the first time and then on top of that they throw this song at him I think I would have run out of the studio screaming uh, so, uh, so at least he had. I think he knew what he was getting into. At least, you know, I think he'd he'd been around it as as different roles in EMI, and I think he absorbed a little bit of Beatle magic and a little bit of Beatle rebellion. Uh, and he had assisted on a number of Beatles tracks, you know, from the years sixty three through sixty five. Right, and then he he missed Rubber Soul because he was doing something else, but. Um, I have to say, even no, even having known the Beatles a bit from his earlier session work, um, it still is a huge difference walking into the session where what they want to do is tomorrow never knows. I mean that that changed all the rules for them in a way, and they they wanted they wanted something unlike anything they'd ever had before, or really unlike anything that had been recorded before. You know, John and his Dalai Lama on a distant mountain thing. You know, that, that that had to have been a, uh, you know, to walk in and it's your first day as the engineer and you have to come up with this. That had to have been a big challenge. Right. I think something we should address up front is that this show is about what Jeff did in the studio. It's not about the book. His memoir was really written by Howard Massey because 
I know you interviewed him, Alan, in the mid-90s. Right. And his recall was pretty much shot. I interviewed him around that time. Same story. Mark Lewison told me he interviewed him in, I think, the mid-80s. And his memory was gone. And he read some article from the late 70s, an interview with him, where he didn't remember anything. Right. So, you know, the magical return of memory in the book... Yeah. And with all of the factual errors, uh, you know, it was strewn with, um, as pointed out at the time by Ken Scott, uh, we have to just sort of write that off as largely a work of fiction that didn't come from Jeff's head. He signed off on it, but it wasn't his. Yeah. And that is not what this show is about. It is frustrating, though, because when you have a memoir from someone like that, who, as all of the quotes on the back of the book say, was there. Uh, you yeah. kind of expect and hope that it will be really his memories, but he didn't remember much. And um, one of the things that Howard Massey did, I mean, I guess it is a logical thing to do if you are ghostwriting someone's memoir and they don't remember much, is he went and interviewed a lot of Jeff's colleagues uh, at EMI uh, and, and I guess other places too. And um, Ken Scott wrote a letter in 2006, actually, just before the book came out, and he talks about being interviewed by Howard Massey, and he he says, I mean, it's very clear all of the people who were interviewed understood that they were filling in Jeff's absent memories. I mean, he says, in fact, we all came to understand that these interviews were arranged because he had very little recall of those days, and his co-author would use our memories to become Jeff's stories. Um, And the problem seems to have been that um, a lot of of what uh, Howard Massey put in the book was not quite right, like saying that Jeff was the first engineer under 40 to be hired, uh, elevated to first engineer by EMI. And Ken Scott mentions that Peter Bound, Stuart Eltham, Malcolm Addy, and Peter Vince were all promoted before they were 40, well before they were 40. And he actually provided a large list of errors. Um, And there were also some stories that these people told Howard Massey that were, you know, just their own stories that I guess, you know, once they got interviewing, it it got kind of chatty and they're telling other stories, uh, things that happened when Jeff wasn't even present. And suddenly those became Jeff's stories too. And that upset, uh, upset Ken, it upset Malcolm Addy, who also wrote to the legal department of Penguin, which published the book. And, uh, so, you know, the problem is it's it's a very unreliable book if you want to know what happened. And you read it. I, I read it again last night, and it was just sort of, you know, wishing it was you know, I could rely on it because there's so many interesting stories in there. For instance, um, John playing mixes of Revolution and Revolution Number no. 9 for the other Beatles, and Paul saying, well, it's okay, and John lashing out at him saying this is what the Beatles should be doing from now on. It, it's kind of a fascinating tale, but I kind of wonder whether it was true. It, it could be. It could not be, you know? Yeah, I mean, it's it's a ridiculous approach to take to a book. It's one that I, I know for a fact I would never take. If I was <laughs> writing someone's memoir and they can't remember hardly anything, and now I've got to get other people to serve as their memory, mm-hmm. pretty much 100%, there's no book there. 
you know, I ghosted a book for someone and I, I did a little of that. I didn't really so much interview other people as research what it was they were talking about because their memory was spotty. And uh, Yeah, that, that's normal. There's nothing wrong with that, but not when, I don't know, 90 plus percent is coming from other people. <laughs> right. <laughs> so anyway, as I said, get that out of the way. What this show is about is what we know Jeff did, you know, right. which is on record, mm-hmm. what we can hear. Um, and so, so that's the focus here. But I just thought we should get that out of the way. Mm-hmm. Well, that that begs a question there, as you were talking about it, Alan, where some other people's stories suddenly get uh, brought into the canon, into the lore of uh, of Jeff Emmerich. Um, with success, other people, you know, it's a funny thing about success in any project. People get start laying claim to parts of it, and if it's a failure, they they distance themselves so obviously the Beatles had so much success so I would ask who's more responsible for some of these great innovative techniques and sounds is it on Beatles records that that Jeff was involved in you know I mean Abbey Road to me still sounds like a pretty modern record and and Uh subtly and beautifully recorded and put together so how much of that was Jeff and how much of that is George Martin well I I you've forgotten the other option which is how much of that is the beatles because uh, and, I, and how and how yeah, much well, i think the creativity is coming from the beatles largely. yeah but they're not capturing it so what i'm saying is is it's not i'm not talking about the sounds going in but the way these sounds were captured recorded balanced mixed um i think beyond suggestions were they i mean were or were the beatles i mean Famously, for something like Sgt. Pepper, they weren't even present for the stereo mix. So that's what I'm talking about when I say the sound. I don't mean the sounds going in. I mean the way it was all kind of arranged and put together and and released to us. That that layer that they didn't really get as involved in until later in their careers. How much of that? Who? who where does the needle point more? You know, I think if we're talking about Abbey Road, what you're hearing is... Um, the orchestral arrangements are going to be George Martin. Um, any arranging ideas like making a suite out of all the unfinished songs that ended up at the beginning aside too. I mean, George Martin has kind of taken credit for the suggestion and worked on it with Paul. I think in, in terms of what Jeff did, I think we're talking largely about the sound and the mix and and those kinds of things. And the, and for Abbey Road, it's a fundamentally different kind of thing than, say, Revolver and Pepper, um, which were the other two that he really is completely responsible for engineering. Um, in those cases, you know, we started with Tomorrow Never Knows, and we've got John and his Dalai Lama, and basically they wanted sounds that didn't really exist or that didn't sound that way when they were producing them, but Jeff had to find a way to make it sound different on tape. On Abbey Road, there's not that much of that. Abbey Road is pretty much the sound of a band making music. We've also seen photos of Paul with his fingers on the faders while George and Jeff are looking on. Right. Right? Right. So, you know, it's like, I don't know where you point the finger, Eric, because as Alan said, you know, you have George Martin from the kind of very musical perspective, and then you have Jeff from the technical, but of course... You know, they overlap as well, without a doubt, especially George most likely overlapping into Jeff's arena. 
a picture of Paul with his hands on the faders is a good photo op. I mean, watching, seeing a picture of Paul doing that is great. I mean, nobody needs a bunch of pictures of Jeff Emmerich, you know, um, writing the faders up and down. So that doesn't necessarily indicate that Paul had a lot to do with that. But knowing Paul's personality, I would assume he probably did. Now, going back to what Alan said, I mean, that's really makes a lot of sense. And you can get even more specific, like when you start to think about like Ringo's drum sounds and the close miking of the bass drum, which was never done before. You know, that that's Jeff Emmerich. So the way the songs had a punch to them with the compression and and the close miking of the horns, I'm sure that, uh, you know, I mean, I just can't see George Martin stepping in and saying, you know, move that microphone closer to the bass drum. Um that would be Jeff Emmerich. So, and then when you get to, when you get to the actual recording of the sounds, I would say that the majority of that would be Jeff Emmerich. Probably when it get time to to actually sit down and mix this stuff, or to when they had to blend tracks or bounce tracks, it would probably be the combination of George Martin and Jeff Emmerich probably sitting at the desk together working mm. it out. And also one of the reasons I think that that Abbey Road sounds sonically is a bit different, other than the fact that. A lot of the recordings, like uh, John was there, and and to me, to me, Abbey Road is probably the one album where it's the least band-like. Even though people would say that the White Album is that they all acted like as session musicians for each other. To me, Abbey Road feels the most disjointed. Like I don't hear like John's John's contribution or lack of contribution in a lot of George's songs, and everything is quite obvious. And, and also, uh, we get back to Jeff Emmerich. And I believe that Abbey Road was the first album that was recorded on a transistor desk as opposed to, uh, you know, mm -hmm. one of the uh, EMI tube desks. So that's why sonically it sounds different. It just doesn't have quite the warmth and the punch that the earlier stuff does. Let me ask you this. On the White Album, where we've got, you know, George Martin is producer, we got Chris Thomas in a production role mm -hmm. and then we've got you know some tracks engineered by Jeff some by Ken Scott do you hear the difference between the Jeff Emmerich tracks and the Ken Scott tracks in addition to Hey Jude which obviously wasn't on the actual album the Ken Scott engineered tracks were Glass Onion Helter Skelter Birthday Back in the USSR While My Guitar Gently Weeps and Not Guilty Anything about those stand out from the rest of the album? I say no. You know, the thing is about the White Album is it's all over the map as far as the styles and everything. I don't necessarily hear um, a big difference between the two. Uh, I think that probably if, if I was um, Ken Scott, I would want to probably mimic what Jeff Emmerich was doing. I, mean, I don't think I'd want to come into the middle of an album and say, I've got a completely different approach for this. That would, be, mm -hmm. would, have, been, would have been a huge mistake. Right. With the Norman Smith tracks, you've got there a middle-aged guy as the engineer who's pretty much playing by the book, okay? You know, the well-known EMI rules, and uh, that, that was sort of passed down from the technical department where you couldn't push things into the red and, and so on and so forth. And then along comes Jeff, who's 20 years old when he starts working as the full-fledged engineer with the Beatles, and he's a young guy who's willing to break the rules, which is perfect for them. So we know that dynamic, but is there a difference, Craig, in the actual sound in terms of, you know, I'm not just talking about where he's pushing the envelope and putting John's voice, you know, through the Leslie or putting the uh, drum mics closer up, 
But in terms of, you know, I don't know whether it's warmth or any other sort of dynamics, do you hear a difference? Oh, there's a huge difference. Um, the, the major one I can think of is Norman Smith didn't have a problem with the, the ambience of the studio itself. Um, Jeff Emmerich was, I think in a lot of ways, he set the tone for albums that would come out probably for the next uh, 15 years, uh, it, probably until punk rock and new wave sort of came back in. You think about Norman Smith's recordings and there's ambience you can hear ambience just like obviously in the early Beatles stuff because it's you know the fact that they were recording pretty much live but um you know there's a noticeable difference when Jeff Emmerich takes over everything is just so dry and so punchy and so in your face and and if they did have something that was a room sound it was very carefully controlled like a song like your blues or something like that where they would want to um, you know do it in a small closet and do it all live It's very controlled, and it's it's like Jeff Emmerich uh, basically said, well, the sound of the studio isn't a professional sound, even though he explored the different the different areas of the studio and what it's going to sound like on the carpet as opposed to what it's going to sound like on the wood floor and on all these different things, what it's going to sound like in the corner and all these things. But Jeff Emmerich's, uh, the sounds are so dry and in your face, it set the tone for recording all the way up and through until when when the room sounds actually became in vogue again, which would have been during the punk rock, new wave uh, era, because you think about every, almost every every major group that recorded after Jeff, Jeff Emmerich and the Beatles sort of set that tone for everything being just so, so per perfectly recorded. I mean, it. you listen to, you know, like uh, this this band I've heard of called Heart, for example. Um, <laughs> they, um, you know, listen to the first album and everything, even the drums. I mean, the drums are so dry and the snare drum, it's like you don't hear any of the leakage from any of the, um, the microphones. And that's pretty much every recording. I mean, you, you think about even rock songs uh, were, were not recorded with ambience for the most part. And I, I, could, I take that all the way back to Jeff Emmerich and, and he's largely responsible for that. Ten, groups like 10CC, they used room sounds only for an effect. They didn't, 
they didn't necessarily embrace it. It was something that they tried specifically to avoid. Hmm. So in terms of that dry, in-your-face sound with the Beatles, would you then say the epitome of that is the White Album? Um, the White Album is very dry, but it's also, I consider it to be their dirtiest album as far as they didn't clean it up, and I think it's on purpose, and I think that's one of the interesting things that Giles Martin said about the, uh, the, the, the new uh the new reissue that's coming out. He says it's just got a lot of dirt in it, and they were real careful not to remove that because I think that's some of the charm of the White Album. But no, I mean, I hear it. Uh, it's really, really quite obvious on Revolver. Listen to, like, uh, the drums on Good Day Sunshine and uh, and how just the kick drum kind of comes through on those uh, those punches. I know it's an overdub, but still, it's just like the, just the accents are so right there and in your face. to laugh and when the sun is out I've got something I can laugh about I feel good in a special way I'm in love and it's a sunny day Good day sunshine Good day sunshine Good day sunshine We take a walk the sun is shining down. I guess it's a byproduct of one of Jeff's um, signature moves, which is the close miking. Um, you, you mic drums real close, you're not going to get a lot of room ambience. And um, that, that does seem to be what he was going after. And yet he was okay about having artificial room ambience right on the recorded tracks. Um, I'm thinking yesterday, uh, Richard and I were listening to some isolations of a day in the life and we were listening to John's vocal. Um, and it's got tons of reverb right on it where I, I think today you would probably, I mean, you could tell me Craig, if I'm wrong, but I think you would record it dry and then decide what kind of reverb you want in post-production. Oh yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, that, I think that was just a, uh, I, I think they did that because they probably just didn't have the capability of putting the reverb on it. Um, it was just kind of, they set the sound and they set the tone and the vibe and then just recorded it because I have those isolated tracks as well. And you can hear like the uh, the reverb and you can hear the delay on John's voice. And, uh-huh. I, you know, I think they just nailed the sound and just said, okay, we're going to go for it. You know, when you're doing things on four tracks, you have to commit. Right. And um, and there's a big difference between reverb and room sound. Um, reverb is a very controlled effect. You can decide on how much you want to put on it. Room sound, the more, the, like, you, know, you start recording drums and you start recording bass and, and live instruments, and you start to get into that Phil Spector wall of sound thing. I mean, Jeff Emmerich recording, like, horns with, like, the, the microphones, like, literally in the bells of the uh, the horns. It's like... It, it's interesting because it doesn't give, it's it, it's a disadvantage in the sense that you, you want an instrument, you want to mic an instrument from afar just because you definitely want the, the, the sound of the instrument to grow. Like an acoustic guitar doesn't necessarily sound good if you put a microphone inside the hole of the guitar because then you don't get the wood and the ambience that the guitar is projecting. But what you do get, if you want to do that, is a very unique, specific sound, which is what I think Jeff Emmerich what what we 
are now all discussing and we love so much about the Beatles songs is you listen to songs like Savoy Truffle or you listen to Good Morning, Good Morning and you listen to the sound of those horns and they're just, they don't sound anything like, like Motown or anything. They just, they're just very unique. Nothing to do to save his life, call his wife in. Nothing to say, but what a day, how's your boy been? Nothing to do, it's up to you. I've got nothing to say, but it's okay. Good morning, good morning, good morning. I agree with you guys when you say that the White Album was sort of the the dirty one that they left some of the dirt in. I always think of the most slick sounding of all the Beatle records for me was Abbey Road and the most modern sounding because it sounded more or less what albums were going to sound like, you know, into the later part of the 70s, you know, 76, 77, you know, right until punk rock came and turned everything, you know, up on its ear again. It, it, It always struck me... Well, as I was asking earlier in the show, I'm I'm very curious, and perhaps we'll never really know who made certain sound decisions. And what do I mean by that? Who was the one between Jeff and um, George Martin who came up with that ingenious sonic trick at the beginning of um, Come Together, the shoot me, you know, with that... I mean, I never knew he was saying shoot me until much, much later in my life, but that, you know... It sounds like a percussive effect. It's so unique. Who came up with that? Come together right now over me. Was that Jeff or was that George? Well, some of those are lucky mistakes, like the example you just gave. Um, you, you put uh, John, he, I believe he did the hand clap while he was singing. And uh, so what you're hearing is when, you, when he says me, he's, he's clapping his hand. And so the compressor is, is uh, reacting to the sound of his clap. And um, so it's, it's a happy mistake in that sense. Yeah, and I, I would have said that anything like that, if it wasn't a, an accident, would be I'd be looking more towards Jeff than George Martin for that. Oh yeah, I don't think that was necessarily something. I mean, as I say, I think when you hear the demo tapes or whatever, I mean, um, somebody is helping Lennon and helping those guys shape the sounds, uh, because obviously once that team goes away, Lennon's music begins to sound very different. Paul's music begins to sound very different, um, and yet. It gets beatily again later on, say for Paul, who's the only one to to work with at least one of them. Well, he worked with, with Jeff a bunch of times. He worked on... Uh, okay, that's very interesting, actually. Into the 70s, when I think about it, you know, Band on the Run was very beatily. Right. He worked with Jeff in the 80s and the 90s as well. What do you think it was about, you know, apart from maybe just personal dynamics, in the musical sense, do you think Jeff was better suited to Paul's kind of music than the others? I would say yes, Um just judging from the way their solo albums sound, I mean, Band on the Run is very Beatley. Uh, London Town has a lot of um, has a lot of those dry sounds on it as well. Um, 
I think he did Tug of War as well. Even on Flaming Pie album, right. you have songs like Young Boy, and, and which is very Beatlish sounding, and that's a Jeff Emmerich mm-hmm. engineered record. Well, I mean, Jeff Emmerich, you know, he's like, we can, we can also talk about Badfinger and his contribution to Badfinger and how Beatlesque they were. So, I mean, he definitely had a sound. And, and Richard, you're asking about the other musicians. I mean, you, you think about what George wanted. I don't think George wanted the Jeff Emmerich uh, necessarily. He wanted that sound, per se, when he, when he first went off his own. I know John probably didn't at all because he wanted everything to be swimming in reverb and, and he wanted everything to be very, very real. Uh, I think, you know, one of the things that we're not exactly missing, I mean, it, we've, I think you've mentioned it, uh, but we're not talking just about, you know, the producer and the engineer. There's, there's obviously a lot of interplay with the musicians, too, saying what they want and, and what they're trying to get. And then the engineer and producer having to react to that to try and get them what they want. Now, John Kurlander was Jeff's assistant on the Abbey Road album. Uh, You know, this was like the start of John's career. And so I actually called up with him to just ask him about his take on working with Jeff in the studio and Jeff the man. When did you first join the Abbey Road team? In September of 1967. Initially working in the tape library, I was 16 at the time. And I was working in the tape library for about two months until December of 1967. And then at the beginning of 1968, January 1968, I started as an assistant engineer. Although at the time, we were called things like button pushes and tape ops, but basically what's known nowadays as an assistant engineer. Yeah. I worked with all the engineers in that first year in 68, and I assisted Jeff on mixing the Zombies, Odyssey, and Oracle. Mm -hmm. So that was like the first time I remember clearly that Jeff and I worked together. And then the other very clear memory that I have is a, a session early in probably February or early March in Studio 2, late one night. We finished about 11 o'clock at night. In 69? In 69, yeah. We were clearing up the studio late at night with one of the technical engineers, Dave Harris, and Dave said, uh, <laughs> I've been asked by Jeff and George Martin whether you would assist on the next Beatles album. And I was kind of surprised because I was so young. And I remember asking Dave why. And he just said, well, because they've asked for you and you better do it. (laughs) A few days later, I went to Richard Lush. He worked with Jeff a lot, not just on Sgt. Pepper, but a lot of other projects as well. He, um, Richard had been Jeff's regular engineer. Mm. And I said, well, you, are you sure that you don't want to do it? He said, no, you do it. <laughs> <laughs> he said, you'll enjoy it. So Richard told me to do it. So I guess I had no option, but other than say, thank you very much, I'll do it. But I mean, were you excited or had the word gone round that this could be difficult? Both. <laughs> as, they, as they say now, uh, nowadays, nervous and excited. <laughs> right, right. When you look through the, the session diaries, there were a lot of other engineers and assistant engineers working on the album. So I wasn't the only tape op, but I probably did most of the sessions. 
What was it like working with Jeff as an engineer? What made him special? First of all, Jeff was a complete chain smoker. I mean, just all day, like from the minute the session started to finish, it was like smoking one cigarette after the other. Mm. And this was the engineer who'd done Sgt. Pepper and countless other albums of the Beatles. He was unbelievably nervous. He was nervous about everything. And I remember just a lot of times my work trying to create a, a calm atmosphere to keep him cool. But he, he was very jumpy, very nervous, chain-smoking all the time. Of course, this was his return to the Beatles fold after he'd walked out during the White Album sessions. Yeah. So, I mean, that, there could have been a lot of history that I wasn't aware of. Hmm. But I remember one day there was a call from the secretary of the managing director of EMI Records... And she said that the managing director was going to stop by to see the, the session that evening. So I relayed that to Jeff. And Jeff went into, like, hyper-nervous state, even more so. And he, he, he had me spend the rest of the afternoon clearing up every tiny bit of rubbish in the room and, like, spring-cleaning the whole room <laughs> and getting it perfect. And I remember saying to him, why are you so nervous about this fast coming when you've got this history with the Beatles and you're working with the Beatles and George Martin? What's the big deal of it? And he, he wouldn't answer the question. He was just, it just like put him into hyper nervous mood. So he, he was very nervy, um, chain smoking all the time. And you have to really think that that was part of his genius, part of his talent that that's just the way he was. I mean, there's a, there's a lot of very well-known, famous recording engineers throughout history who are known for their super cool and can't get flustered by anything. That was not Jeff. Mm. Uh, but Jeff used all that nervous energy to great advantage. You think it basically sharpened his focus? I think so, yeah. Mm. yeah I, never, I never saw it as a negative. I actually saw it as a as a positive it's just a lot a lot of energy there that that came out in different ways yes and uh i think you know when people tell the stories of how inventive he was and how he wasn't really prepared to be stuck by the restrictions that we had the rules of what you could couldn't do mm. um i think that's just all part of the same personality from your recollection on the Abbey Road project, was it very much the Beatles' creativity and, and then Jeff realising their ideas for them with, with George Martin, or was he himself coming up with ideas? That's a little bit difficult to, to analyse from such a long, long time mm. ago because you can't really remember who said what and who did what. The thing was that the Beatles were constantly asking for new ideas, new sounds, and, and new pieces of equipment to be custom-built. And whether Jeff would actually be able to translate that, like rather than just call down the tech team and say, we want a machine that does this, like we want a, a machine that automatically double-tracks, or we want a machine that automatically phases, or we want something to be able to get an instrument or a voice into a Leslie speaker. 
Jeff, I'm pretty sure, was the interface of saying, they've asked for this, but this is how I think you could do it. Mm. Uh, and he, he would, like, translate it into technical terms because basically what we used to call the Amprum, who were the guys who built all these were not in the room all the time. They would just be on, pretty much on, on call, on demand. So when we called them in, they wouldn't know anything about the current situation of the session or what's being talked about. So Jeff would translate it into technical terms. Mm. Did you learn anything from Jeff? That sort of resonates to this day. He had the same training as all of us initially, but there are no rules. You can, you can break the rules. And, yeah. you know, a lot of things, you know, I'm still doing this all these years later and I, I, I make things up as I go along. Yeah. And, you know, people say, how would you do this? Uh, or how did you do that? Why? And I say, I don't know. I'm just kind of making up as I go along today. Sometimes, you know, I, if I'm doing the third or the fourth repeat of, for the same project, I'll do the same thing. But other times I'll just channel Jeff and say, well, you know, we, we did that. Let's, let's move on and now let's do something else. And if nobody else has thought of doing this, doing it a different way, that's fine. I'll just do it. And, you know, there's just no end to the experimentation. Jeff would put mics in places that nobody else would put mics. He'd put them in different positions. And he'd say, well, it's fine. If, if there's a, a book that says you mustn't do this, I think I'll do it anyway, just to, to yeah. find out why. <laughs> yeah, because I think one of the early things he did was put the mics much closer to Ringo's kit. Yeah. And, you know, the double string quintet on Eleanor Rigby was mic'd incredibly close to the point of the string players being very nervous about even moving in case the mic would hit the instrument. Hmm. So, I mean, Jeff had to, to kind of brave that a little bit, but that's what, what he wanted. But I don't think that it was just putting the mics closer than anyone else. And it, it, it would be a little bit too simplistic just to sum it up like that. There, there's various miking techniques that I still use, having seen Jeff do it. And then the other thing, you know, I, living here in, in L.A., I, I saw Jeff periodically in Los Angeles. And I remember a talk with him a few years ago where I think it might have been McCartney appearing on the Grammys they called in Jeff to supervise the live sound for the, the broadcast. And, you know, all the other bands, even for a Grammy broadcast, you know, were like having 40 or 50 channels. And Jeff said, oh, I think I need six or seven. And kept it really simple. I like to kind of think it was a little bit like the Gordon Ramsay of engineering. Just keep it simple. Yeah. In terms of the Beatles, of course, he joined them at a sort of pivotal transitional stage, you know, where they're going from Rubber Soul to Revolver. Mm -hmm. uh, but apart from, you know, what we know, as, as you say, there was always innovations in terms of the equipment and their own demands or requests. But do you hear a sort of an actual difference to the Jeff Emmerich sound compared to the Norman Smith sound? Yes, I do. I mean, when you, when you go back and listen, you, even if you didn't know when it changed from Norman mm. to to Jeff, you, you you could tell a difference. But 
It's also to do with the evolution of the band themselves, that they never wanted to do the same thing again. Right. And, they, you know, they, they wanted to do each time, let's do something that hasn't been done before. And one of the enduring thoughts that I have over the years is that people say, oh, you know, we've got to go back and get this vintage mic or a plug-in that emulates something from the 50s or the 60s. Beatles and Jeff never did that. They were never interested. I don't think I ever heard on a Beatles session, could we go back and get the same guitar sound that we did four years ago? Mm. What did we do? They, they weren't interested in, go, in referring backwards. They were only interested in, well, could we get a guitar sound that no one's ever done? Yeah. And I think that, that is, that's actually the main takeaway that I have from those days and Jeff. And Jeff was up, you know, Jeff wouldn't say, oh, well, you know, do you want me to try and do this thing that, that Norman did? No, of course not. Mm. Just move on. Do you think he was under a lot of pressure to innovate himself? Not really pressure like that. When Norman Smith started working on the Beatles... He wasn't as young as Jeff was. He was 20. Yeah. Norman was never 20 at the beginning of the Beatles. Right. And I kind of felt for that because I, when I was assisting him on Ivy Road, I was 18. So he had two really young kids working with what was known at the time or recognised at the time as the most important band in the world. You know, he was just a kid and I was just a kid. I think you'd get more paranoid about it if you were a bit older and, and a bit more experienced. I think it's a, a combination of youth and inexperience and like, well, if I do this and it doesn't work, what does it matter? Just do it. One store's away To get back Stores away to get back home. Sleep, pretty darling, do not cry, and I will sing a lullaby.
recent years, Jeff was publicly resentful about the fact that he wasn't invited to be involved in the remixes of, you know, Sgt. Pepper album or the White album. Yes, I did speak to Jeff about that a couple of times. And I also had a very similar conversation with Alan Parsons, mm. who had very similar feelings about, you know, the redos of Dark Side of the Moon. And right. it it's something that any engineer would would feel put out by and not quite understanding any reasons why they wouldn't want to do that. I don't, as an engineer myself, I don't understand it. Hmm. Um, it doesn't make any sense. And even just to have Jeff come in and sit in on it and say, well, I wouldn't do this or I wouldn't do that. But he was pretty much shut out of the whole thing. And for Whatever reasons uh, EMI had to do that is slightly. I, I would definitely take Jeff's side on that. Do you think that uh, the thinking behind it may have been actually very so echoing what happened in the mid '60s with the transition from Norman Smith to Jeff Emmerich, which is we want a younger set of ears. That's a good point. It's a valid point, but. I, I wouldn't agree because then they were talking about each one. It wasn't like they were going to do a re-release of Please Please Me and I Want to Hold Your Hand. Right. This is the same record, the same tapes. Yeah. And to reimagine it uh, with a, a new set of ears doesn't quite fall into the same logic. It would be like an update to one of my books being done by someone else. Exactly. Yeah. And, it, you know, it, it's it's not... It, it's not like a sequel. <laughs> right. You know, this is, is actually the same tapes. Hmm. Uh, and just the idea would have been ideally just to bring it up to whatever the latest technology might be, you know, whether they want a 5-1 or whatever. It's a shame that that happened, I thought. Was he kind of baffled by it or did he have a theory? I think he was a little baffled and you know, a bit upset. The the only consolation, you know, like when I spoke to him, the only consolation is, so, well, it happens. It happened to Alan Parsons on Dark Side of the Moon several years earlier. Mm. And uh, Alan was also very vocal and public on his disappointment. Yeah, it's a, it's a mixture of disappointment and bewilderment. But, you know, that's the way it is. And then, as they say, the public will decide. Yeah. Just based on your own direct experiences, what's your appraisal of Jeff as a recording engineer? I mean, beyond the fact that he worked with the Beatles on these great albums, what do you think his legacy is for the industry as an engineer and as a person? I hold Jeff's memory very dear to me. He was a very generous guy. 
he was very, very kind and helpful to me in my career. And uh, it was a, just a, a great honor to work and assist him at that particular point in time. Yeah. The other thing I've got to tell you, this is like a visual. You know, a lot has been said that like in recent years while he was living in California, that Jeff would always be seen wearing checkered or played yeah. shirt. And that was yeah. like his trademark look. And he'd be like, every time you saw him, he's wearing a very similar shirt. Well, yeah. in the summer of 69, when we worked on the Beatles, he had a very similar thing, except it was a white knitted cricket jumper. Because <laughs> uh, remember, we were just round the corner from Lord's Cricket Ground right. in St. John's Wood. And he would come in every day maybe not the same jumper, always wearing a, a cricket jumper. And so one of my visual images of working with Jeff is this guy, like, why, why is he always wearing cricket gear? Oh, and white trousers. He actually looked like a cricketer. <laughs> also, I think it was white shoes. Or so it was like the white shoes, white trousers, and the cricket jumper. Emulating John Lennon on the cover of Abbey Road, except Lennon wasn't wearing a cricket jumper. <laughs> no. Well, no, yeah, Je yeah Je John Lennon was wearing the suit, but uh, Jeff was definitely dressed up as a cricket player. Very fun. So that bit where um, John Curlander is talking about Jeff's apparent nervousness, um, I, I actually can completely understand because um, even though we have said, for instance, that we're not taking his memoir that seriously as a source of, of info, I think when he talks about how much he hated working on the White Album, um, I think we can take that as, as probably pretty straight because now we're talking about an emotional reaction and he did quit during the White Album sessions and he has always said that the reason he quit during the White Album sessions is because he couldn't stand the bickering anymore and the, the divisiveness and... Uh, and, and, and quite a lot of things, you know, in, in the book, he talks about John wanting to play much louder than they had before and him having to deal with the leakage. Uh, you know, there were, there were probably a lot of reasons he went away. He missed the let it be sessions. And so now he's coming in to engineer Abbey road and Abbey road is going to be the first time he's worked with the Beatles since the white album, which was a horrible experience for him. So, I can see how he might be really nervous because he could be wondering, you know, has was it really the right choice to decide to sign on for this project? Do we know, was it George Martin who, having spoken to Paul and got a reassurance out of him that it will be like the old days where he's the producer and they're mm -hmm. the musicians, was it then George Martin who turned around to Jeff Emmerich or was it the Beatles who approached him, do you know? Don't know, but by that point, um, Jeff was working for Apple. And this is another big puzzle. I was going to say, he had already left. <laughs> yeah, right. this is another big puzzle. You know, if you hated working with the Beatles so much on the White Album that you quit the sessions, why would you then go work for them at Apple? I, I, I can't quite figure that out. Maybe he'd already <laughs> forgotten. Yeah, he forgot his memory being what it was. Well, yeah. wasn't uh, guys? Wasn't Jeff basically the guy in charge of setting up the the studio at Three South? Oh Road? yes, that was his baby. Well, I think. apart from the um, infamous Magic, Magic Alex, Alex yes, his he <laughs> part of his job was to sort of undo what Alex did 
uh, not that Alex did that much, but um, to actually get a working recording studio in there as opposed to what Alex had done. I mean, it tells you something, doesn't it, though, about not only Jeff's strong-mindedness, but what it must have been like working with the Beatles during the latter period. I know Ken Scott said that once he got involved, it was actually a joy, and I do believe him. I don't think he's, you know, bullshitting on that. Maybe, you know, they just decided to behave better after Jeff had walked. But, you know, one can only imagine what it must have been like for this young guy, um, a year after getting the Grammy for Pepper, walking off these Beatles sessions and saying, I'm done with it. That's an amazing thing. Well, did you, you guys met him, two of you. Um, he kind of, in some of the interviews I've seen, he sort of comes off as a bit of a cranky guy. Uh, and I wonder if he was always that way. Was he, did he seem a little bit, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, testy when you uh, talked to him, when you guys interviewed him? Not me personally, but I do know that um, you know, as John said in the interview, that in later years he was quite resentful, and that resentment came from the fact of you know, Pepper reissue and now the White Album reissue. Here's the engineer who's not even invited to participate. Yeah, because actually, in, until um, until I guess the well, not just the Giles Martin era, uh, Peter Cobbin remixed the Yellow Submarine song track album. But up until then, and that was 99, Jeff Emmerich was basically the go-to engineer for EMI, even though he no longer worked for them. When it came to Beatles post-breakup post projects, I mean, he put together the Sessions album. Um or actually George Martin chose the tracks and he mixed them. He was the one to do those remixes. And for the anthology, again, George Martin chose the tracks, Jeff Emmerich remixed them, and that's why I interviewed him um, at the time I did. Uh, I, I wouldn't say that he was particularly testy during my interview. He was a little more like a scared rabbit. I mean, I, I, I had the feeling that... Um, you know, part of it was that he just didn't remember much. But even when we were talking about the anthology, which he was in the middle of doing at the time that we were talking, um, he didn't want to say much because I think he was afraid of um, he, he hadn't been given any guidance by either EMI or Apple about what he's allowed to say, you know, and they're very controlling. When you put together sessions, had you gone through a lot of the raw tapes to find those No, I, no, they were found by other people that worked here at the time. Ah. Uh, people like, there was a guy called John Barrett, John Barrett. and um, and Mike Heatley was, you know, he's still in charge of this on, represents EMI on this, and Mike knew of all these tapes, and it was basically the sessions album was like the best musically and, and stuff of all the stuff that had never been issued. Yeah. Whereas this is obviously more in depth. Luckily, we, you know, the video coming out will give us sense of maybe the non non musical side and bad quality and so forth. Because as I said, it starts off with the very earliest ever recording ever made. You know. Yeah. Which, which wasn't here, of course. What could you do with a thing like that sonically? Not, not a lot. We, in fact, uh, they we uh, it came off of disc and it was put onto the Sonic Solution system, and the clicks were taken off. As best they could be, um, computer, you know, computer sort of sense. Um, so that that is sort of stands up. To me, it it 
could now sound a little too clean because when I first heard it, it was almost like hearing Edison's Mary Had a Little Lamb, you know, from the cylinder. Mm -hmm. So the sort of surface noise that was there, which really isn't there now, sort of helped it, sort of dated it, if you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah. So I don't know whether it was that wiser thing to have cleaned it up as much as it's been cleaned up. Mm. But that's what they wanted. Yeah, I guess so. I guess so. I, I, if it had been up to me, I, I maybe wouldn't have cleaned it up as much as they cleaned it up. Hmm. I see. What was the biggest challenge in doing this so far? Nothing really. Nothing's been a challenge. It's just been great fun. Hmm. Incredible fun to me because you know, I mean, the, the most amazing thing is is like listening to your announcements on the tape that you did like twenty five years ago mm -hmm. and hearing the sort of chat from them before the takes. And it takes it certainly takes me right back to the session. Really? Which is really uncanny. Yeah. And so a lot of that stuff is staying in the record and everything. Yeah. That's good. Yeah. Uh -huh. But even some of the stuff that isn't, you know, to me personally, it takes me right back to the session. I'll remember lots of things that happened on the session. You know, it takes you just immediately straight back into the session. Uh -huh. The other little the funny side, I mean, the other uncanny side, which is, was it, on occasions when George said, oh, I found like a, another version of Day in the Life. You think, my God, you know, I can't, you can't dare touch it. It's like sacred, you know. Tr certain tracks are sacred, you know. Um, not, not only to me, but to, 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 to the rest of the world. And it was in a way like going into Tutankhamun's tomb and touching these little, sort of, yeah. you know, treasures and stuff. And that sort of passed quite quickly, but it was a little odd. Mm -hmm. You know, because they're so, such, as you know, they're just classics in, in their own right. And I, you know, and I know them, I'm sure other people know them, but they know every little nuance in the voice and every little texture on guitar notes and so forth it's just part of that thing that's implanted in their minds there because we've heard those tracks so long yeah. and to actually start you know, messing with them you know you know, I was thinking about the work that he did on the Sessions album and there are two tracks in particular where as a purist collector who really just wants the track as it exists on tape since you know we're talking about outtakes I kind of didn't like what he did but I totally understand why he did it, um, because he was thinking more from an artistic point of view, and how can I make this unfinished thing into a finished product? And that is the first take of While My Guitar Gently Weeps, where instead of just letting it end, he looped the end and then faded out the loop. Um, and the second one is How Do You Do It, where I guess to Jeff it just felt like the symmetry was wrong at the end, and so he took one of the choruses and looped it in a couple more times. Um, you know, as, as, as I say, as a purist collector, I mean, this t is, is horrifying. But I understand why he did what he did, and I think it shows us something about Jeff. You know, it was not necessarily dictated by George Martin. It was, you know, he was to remix these tracks for release. And it obviously seemed to him that the tracks as such just sounded unfinished and he was going to do something to make them sound finished. And so that's his touch there. And, and do we know that that was solely his decision, that no one else would have made that call? Um. I don't know it absolutely, but when I talked to him about working on the Sessions album, he basically said that George picked the tracks and gave them to him to mix. So I guess it's a little ambiguous. 
I also asked him about looping them, and he didn't say that was George's idea. Uh, What I had asked him was, you know, are the tracks that you did for sessions with the endings looped and things like that going to be on the anthology or are they going to just leave them straight? And he said, Oh, I think they're using mine. I, I think I would prefer that they use mine. Maybe if you, maybe if you to frame the question differently and sort of said, whose horrible idea was it? (laughs) (laughs) Well, considering he um, had something to say to Giles about Giles Martin rearranging and shifting and blending things uh, into whole new tracks and that how much he disliked that. I'm a little surprised to hear that he did a little bit of looping and surgery on some of those things. I didn't know that. Yeah, uh, that is rich. During the anthology project, Jeff was brought in kind of as Paul's guy, and George's guy was Jeff Lynn. And uh, there was some animus between George and Jeff. George had been moaning about Jeff being a miserable bastard, which is kind of rich coming from George. (laughs) But, you know, but like 10 years later, in the Here, There and Everywhere book, it was very biased against George. And so I'd have to then wonder if the reason that Jeff wasn't invited onto subsequent projects was either George or Olivia vetoing that idea. Well, he also, Jeff slagged off the Love album pretty badly, uh, which I think was unwarranted, because I actually thought that's probably my favorite thing that Jeff, that uh, Giles has done. I thought it was incredibly creative and an enjoyable listen, especially the 5.1. And, uh, and I know that uh, there was, it was in print, and I, I think that may have been what caused the, the final straw, because it seemed unwarranted. But as John Kurlander said in the interview as well, it's not unprecedented for EMI to do this kind of thing because they did the same with the reissue of Dark Side of the Moon where Alan Parsons wasn't invited to participate and Mm -hmm. he was pissed off. Well, Richard, that's not un- that's not so uncommon in the music business. I mean, people remix and revisit uh, songs all the time. I, I, you know, like a, you're commenting about if somebody did that to your book, that would be totally understandable. But I mean, for uh, for many years, I worked for a company. We did we did remixes and we revisited songs, and um, you know, and the original producer or anybody uh, normally wasn't uh, didn't have anything to do with it. So, I mean, it's not uncommon to get a set of fresh ears and say, okay, here's this stuff. What can you do to it? You know, how can you um, remaster it or how can you remix it or there's something like that? You certainly wouldn't want somebody remastering that they did the original mastering because they have the same set of ears. Yeah, it's a question of perspective, isn't it? I, I get what you're saying there. I understand you're having a fresh set of right. ears. Um, one of the things that is uh, also another claim to fame of Jeff Emmerich is that Abbey Road was originally going to be called Everest. And according to Jeff, uh, the reason is because Everest was the brand of cigarette he smoked. And John Curlander was talking earlier about you know how, how much he smoked and how there'd be these packs left all over. And that sort of fits the story. But Um, When I spoke to John Curlander back in the 90s, what he told me was that they were going to call it Everest because they knew that it was basically going to be their swan song, that it would be their final album. And they were basically saying, we are going out on top. And they were going to be flown to Everest to have a photo taken for the cover. Um, Emmerich has said that too. I mean, so that part's true. Um, And 
there was no disagreement about that. They all thought it was a great idea, but then in the end, none of them could be bothered. And Paul finally said, why don't we just go out in the street and take a photo on the crosswalk? And that's how it became Abbey Road. Right. Of course, John was also the guy who told me years ago that, you know, his experience as a tape opera, as an assistant engineer, um, being in the same room as the Beatles, that when, when there was one of them in the room, it was, you know, great to be around. And the, pretty much the same when there were two in the room. When there were three in the room, it got mm-hmm. a bit scary. And when there were four of them together at the same time, it yeah. got unbearable. Strangely enough, I was listening this morning to the rest of the interviews that I did around the time of the anthology. And Chips Chipperfield, who directed the anthology, said something similar, but without quite the sort of, you know, emotional baggage involved. He, you know, he he produced the the anthology videos and was obviously present for a lot of the interviews and said basically, you know, we interviewed each of them and they were really great. Uh, But when we interviewed the three of them together, I mean, John wasn't there by then, Uh, then it was very, very obvious that you were an outsider and they were the group. Um, There was definitely a a sense of even after all those years and everything that went down in the breakup and and beyond, there was a sense of a bond between the three of them and that nobody who wasn't one of them could really penetrate. Yeah, I mean, who knows? Everyone reacts differently, right, to different situations. And maybe a lot of it was really tough to be there. And that may be part of the reason why Jeff didn't remember stuff. Maybe it was stuff that he conveniently wanted to forget. It was post-traumatic stress syndrome. So if we basically go kind of chronologically from Revolver through Abbey Road, what do you think sonically were the high points you know from an engineering standpoint what do you think were the high points okay we we already said tomorrow never knows from there on you got to get rain in there and i'm only sleeping fantastic sound i mean really everything on revolver is, is interesting sonically just purely sonically Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
funny thing about I'm only sleeping. I'm I'm always going to be slightly colored by we had that rough demo that got pressed up on uh, yesterday and today, right? So it 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 didn't sound that. I, I always thought that. I guess maybe the English one later on. That for some reason in my mind, I always think of it as the American version, which actually doesn't <laughs> sound that great. So I, that's that's funny. I have to stop and think. Oh mm. yeah, that's right. That wasn't really how we wanted it to be. So uh, so you can scratch that. Actually, that's an interesting point, though, Eric, because, you know, we did the show, right? The Beatles US versus Beatles UK and and, and those capital mixes. Jeff only had to suffer a bit of that, really, with, you know, some of Revolver. But thereafter, his work was largely left untouched. Unlike, you know, you wonder what Norman Smith thought hearing his engineering. I think he was too, um, (laughs) I think he was too happy having his solo career and making all of his money as a late pop star in life right oh babe what did you say so craig what what do you think were the high points sonically um during the the jeff emmerich era you'd you'd have to include all of sergeant pepper i don't think there's anything that you could not not include on that and then i would definitely say strawberry fields and um penny lane i am the walrus is amazing um Boy, that, that's a that's a pretty. Dirty I think that's sound, a little dirty. It? Yeah, it is. Yeah, uh, it's all, but it's also meant. You know, it's meant to to, to sound that way. And and, uh, and you, we can't forget about Revolution, right? And, and just how they went about getting those guitar sounds, which I don't think anybody's ever been able to do that again. The way they actually you know went through the process of going through the board and overdriving the board. Hmm. You can be, pretty much take any. Uh, tube amplifier and overdrive it and if you if you bypass the speakers you'll come pretty close to getting that sound it's it's interesting um it has a lot to do with uh, the way an amplifier just the actual like a vox ac30 or something like that it it colors the sound quite a bit just with the speakers in the cabinet but if you run in any amplifier a tube amplifier and you you distort it to a certain point you pretty much get the revolution sound once again, who came up with it? That's that's what always interests me. Who came up with that? Well, I think John came up with the idea that he wanted the whole out the whole song to be just really distorted because when you listen to the isolated tracks, um, I mean, almost everything. Well, the drums are just have the crazy compression on them, but I mean, almost everything is distorted on that track. And um, I think it's John who said I want it to be distorted, and I think it's probably it was Jeff Emmerich that said, okay, well, let's just overdrive these uh these these tube amplifiers or this board and and let's try it that way i wonder how he knew to do that i i think that's marvelous and how is this maybe that's something that's we're not uh, appreciative enough of is here's this 20 year old kid who seems to be able to solve these sonic problems where was he where, where did he know how to do that i mean was it just by making mistakes and kind of cataloging it and well i I think he. I think as I think an engineer would know that if you overmodulate the sound on the way into the bore, that it's going to sound distorted. And he had done it before Revolution. He had done it a bit on John's voice in "I Am the Walrus." Well, and also as John Curlander said in the interview, you know, on Abbey Road, where I think at that time Curlander was about twenty years old, and. Emmerich would have been about, I don't know, 22, 23. So they're both both kids who are working with, at that time, acknowledged the biggest band in the world. 
And yet there's a kind of, for all of that sort of nervousness of Jeff getting ready for the session, once they're into it, you know, they're just going with the flow. Maybe if they were older, it would have been a different story. Maybe they would have been way more aware of what, you know, what they were doing and the magnitude of what they were doing. Oh, yeah, a lot of it has to do with the age. I think Jeff Emmerich, I mean, there's a story about him dropping a microphone into a pail of water because he wanted to hear what that sounded like, and he was always yeah. being reprimanded by the higher-ups at EMI. And, um, uh, you know, the, he he was, it has a lot to do with his age. He was like it. He was like a kid in a candy store. It was like Orson Welles with RKO and Citizen Kane. Yes. He's going to use everything. He's going to try everything. And if it doesn't work, fine. If it doesn't work for that moment, fine. But he's going to catalog that and say, okay, remember that, that, that goofy thing we tried, you know, with John sitting on the sitting on the ground trying to sing with the microphone swirling in front of him? Well, that's basically what a Leslie does. So let's try that. And um, one thing, one thing I'd like to just just step back for a second and just marvel at, because I was thinking about this last night, is that how it's like if you believe in a higher power, it's like how the the, the certain people came into the Beatles' life at exactly the right time. I mean, Brian Epstein came into the Beatles' life just exactly. It's not like it, it wasn't like um, it just sort of happened. It just he came in at the perfect time. I mean, George Martin comes in at the perfect time. Jeff Emmerich, just literally, I mean, Tomorrow Never Knows is his first song. I mean, how it's, it's like this, this, it was, it was always supposed to be this way. If you believe in a higher power or something, it's just bizarre how it worked. You're absolutely right, Craig. I've often thought that the same even with the Hard Day's Night film. You know, they get Dick Lester and Alan Owen writing the script. It is, it's just always, perfect marriage isn't it and and yeah having jeff come in uh, that, that sort of transitionary period rubber soul into revolver which we covered on a previous show how perfect is that it's the perfect marriage right just goes to show that god, god is a beatle fan i mean which being all-knowing he would be there you go well he'd have to be because they were bigger than god <laughs> <laughs> so Again, okay, what would you say, let, let's just each choose, what are our favorite Jeff Emmerich engineered tracks, if we had to sort of zero in on a few? Ooh, that's, boy, that is such a tough one. I, I tend to agree with, with Craig. You can kind of just say all of Sgt. Pepper, but I... Th- uh, yeah, but I mean, like on Pepper, for instance, I would say, for the benefit of Mr. Kite... That, that's an amazing piece of work. It, it is. Um, I think the subtleties, and like I say, I, we're, I'm going to assume it's Jeff who was responsible for what I call the subtleties. You can't really distinguish, you know, the bass harmonicas being used. They're in the mix, but they're so, they, they color what's going on so beautifully, uh, especially uh, later on when, when they had that Moog on, on the sessions for Abbey Road. Everybody else was clubbing you over the head with a Moog. You know, wow, we got this new piece of technology. And and how whichever of, of the production staff made that decision to just use it in the most subtle of ways uh, in, in like Here Comes the Sun. I would say, actually, Here Comes the Sun. That's, that's I think, my favorite piece of production. I'm just blown away with the subtlety and the beauty and how clear it is and you know, I, I just think it's the perfect recording. Yeah, for me, Dear Prudence, I think it's just a fantastic production. 
you know, yeah. which, again, it's not just, you know, Jeff Emmerich, obviously, it's the Beatles and, it, and George Martin, I totally get it. But I think sonically as well, just fantastic. Absolutely yeah. amazing. That sort of, you know, the cacophony of sound that resolves itself at the end, everything about that, I think is perfection. I'd like to throw in a good morning, good morning as well, because I think that is the personification of what Jeff Emmerich was trying to achieve. If you listen to the, uh, like the, the, the version on anthology and you listen to how punchy the basic track is, and, and, oh my God, it's just like the drum sound is like, and, and the way the bass is. <laughs> Hurricane Smith would have never used that much compression or, or had the instruments be that that dry. Um, that that song, and then you know you have to get into all the edits afterwards you know, with the with the uh, uh, the animals and everything. But um, but just that song to me is like this is what Jeff Emmerich was trying to do. That the sound of the horns being so unique and so bright and. Um, and of course, we have to include "Day in the Life" because that's just such a beautifully recorded song. Absolutely. And what about "Hey Bulldog," where you know you said that was one of the few times that George Harrison had his amp turned all the way up, right? And you know, and he's pushing the bass sound in there and everything. It's superb. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I would have to agree with all of the ones that were mentioned, but also, I guess. Um, to choose one that hasn't been mentioned uh, would have to be, well, let me ch choose two. One is I Am the Walrus, which we've mentioned before. Um, there was his idea of distorting the vocal because John wanted something like that, and I guess he didn't want to use the Leslie trick again. Um, and not to mention all the stuff that's going on towards the end, the live stuff, the live radio stuff being mixed in. I mean, that had to be an engineering challenge, you know, to to get that right. And uh, some of it was just sort of chance. I mean, they happened to be mixing it in right as they were in that part of King Lear. You know, it just sort of worked brilliantly. But um, the other one would be the end on Abbey Road. Um, and... At the risk of disagreeing with Craig, who, you know, you said it, it sounded least like a band album, the end to me just sounds like, you know, I can envision when listening to it, even though I know it's probably not the case, 
that this is a band playing live in the studio, trading guitar solos and and just you know having a a, a big final blowout at the end of their last album. And um, I mean, I, I when the when the two thousand nine CDs came out, I was doing a lot of a being with you know the old CD, the new CD, the Mobile Fidelity Half Speed Master, um, and I think I ended up finding the Mobile Fidelity Half Speed Master LP sounded the best. And I put that on, put Psy 2 on, and cranked it up. And I found, in a way, the end absolutely heartbreaking. You know, it is so solid and together and balanced. And, you know, Jeff is obviously going to be a big part of that. But, you know, you get to the end of that, and there's the piano chords and then the harmony vocals, and in the end, the love you make... And it's just sort of heartbreaking because you're you're listening to that incredible track and thinking, you guys telling me you can't get it together to keep going when this is what you're doing right as you're breaking up? It just doesn't make sense, you know. Do you think Let It Be would have sounded different if Jeff was the engineer? I would hope so. <sighs> I think so. I mean, it's it's its own animal. You know, it's it's gone through so many filters. It's kind of hard to know. Uh, and I know they... Obviously, they tried, you know, with Let It Be Naked, you know, kind of stripping back the specterization or at least some of it. I, I, that's a really tough, tough question. I think it would have. I think it would have sounded, um, well, less spooky. I guess I always said that the specterization was kind of spooky, you know, like like the, the direction hmm. that I Me Mine went in when you when you listen to the sort of specter version or, or or also the long and winding road with the, you know the the heavenly choirs and stuff i mean coming on the heels of all of that paul is dead stuff that seemed to be like yet another clue yeah but that was a production call right that wasn't an engineering call that's nothing to do with the engineer yeah but i i suppose specter wouldn't have worked i i get that feeling that they would have been so different in their approaches that Spectre just would have had somebody that was used to just taking his orders and knew what he meant as opposed to having to explain it to some guy like Jeff just because he'd been there you know what I mean I, I just don't think he would have worked with him I I mean that was my impression of the guy is that he seemed like a pretty he was willing to walk out on the Beatles at age 22 because he was pissed off at their bickering I could imagine he wasn't going to show a whole lot of love to Phil Spectre yeah, I agree. I think that the, the um, "Let It Be" it was it was a concept that didn't that was devised by the Beatles that didn't quite work. And I don't necessarily think that uh, that Jeff Emmerich's engineering abilities would have been the glue to make it sound more like other Beatle albums or make it just better in general. I just think that there wasn't it. There was very little to play with as far as instrumentation goes, and they wanted everything to be live. And in, in many ways, Let It Be was many of the things that Jeff Emmerich was trying to avoid. And uh, just the, the sound of the room and the sound of them all playing together and, and letting the mistakes go. And, you know, it was, it, was, it was a bit of a misstep that he probably wouldn't have been able to remedy as an engineer. You know, something else, Craig, we were talking, you were talking about the timing with the Beatles, always perfect. Uh, and I was sort of saying, yeah, that period of, you know, from Rubber Soul into Revolver and, and Jeff makes his entrance. But it's also, of course, kind of just shortly before they're going to quit the road and, and going to be focused squarely on the studio. So that is when they're going to most likely have more time and more inclination to be pushing the envelope. 
And so again, it's absolutely perfect that they've got this young guy behind the board for them. Absolutely. I think Craig touched upon this a little bit earlier. I think we should talk a little bit about Jeff's lasting influence. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's interesting. I, I think he, he was kind of like the most impactful Beatle participant, if you will, who was the most invisible. You really, he's the guy that his work truly stood in for him. He seems to have been kind of a shy guy, certainly not much of a self-promoter that I could ever see. He wasn't like he was showing up in every movie. Yeah, it's interesting, you know, you say that. I, you know, after he died, I was looking at photos on the internet. And as Craig said, it's not like that wasn't his position to be having photos taken with the Beatles particularly. But we've got a few shots of Norman Smith in the studio with them. And when it comes to Jeff, I couldn't find one shot of him with John Lennon. Um, it's just a few with Paul, a few with George Martin, those publicity shots of him, you know, with the Grammy, the Sergeant Pepper Grammy with George Martin and Ringo. And that's it. They, they, I couldn't find one shot of Jeff Emmerich with all four Beatles. I think I've got some f movie footage of him, but I'll go back and uh, review it. The funny thing is, I think he's like he doesn't make eye contact with the camera, if I remember correctly. I think he's just kind of sitting there going about what he's doing, and he's kind of sitting next to George and then George Martin on the other side. And I think a couple of the Beatles drift through in some of these. But he just seemed to be the ultimate put your head down and keep it down and, you know, not a self-promoter, as they say. And right. George, it was about you know, the George, George Martin, you know, was a great self-promoter. You know, you'd, you'd talk and, you know, did a lot of interviews about, you know, Beatles stuff, whether it was, you know, real or reimagined. Um, or, or massaged over time, at least he was there and he was like a good spokesperson and very credible, you know, for those of us, you know, who were just kind of watching it and maybe not as completely well-informed as we would be later on in life. But it just, I think it's more his absence from all of these projects as a talking head now that he's gone. That fascinates me. It's like, here's a guy, I mean, obviously people in the industry, you know, Elvis Costello, whomever, I mean, everybody, Badfinger, if they wanted that, they all respected his sound. But he just, he, he was a, a shy guy, I guess. He, he was about the work. That was it. But also, you know, in those days, EMI was not um, falling over itself to give the public any information about its engineers and who they were. And, you know, I think I think the first time... We saw Jeff Emmerich's name was probably on the back of Abbey Road when it says something like, thank you to Jeff Emmerich. Actually, I'll correct you there, Alan. It's on the White Is Album. Is it in the White Album? Yeah, and, and mm -hmm. they misspell his name, spelling it J-E-F-F. Ha. Huh. <laughs> that was the first time a Beatles engineer but got credited. But it was credited. on the poster, right? Yeah. In the back and where the lyrics are in small print. Um, but right, you know, I mean, even even a lot of producers didn't get a lot of credit. I think they got more credit in the U.S. than typically in England. But, you know, we, uh, George Martin ended up having sort of a cult of personality that a, very few of his predecessors had, maybe Nori Paramore. But I'm not even sure whether regular old people knew about Nori Paramore. Well, yeah, and also in America, the, you know, that you had Phil Spector and you had uh, right. people like that, and they were the rock stars in in themselves. But also getting back to Jeff Emmerich, you know, you th he's he's. I mean, you guys would know more than this whether this is just part of his 
his lore that, uh, but, you know, he said that, um, you know, th- back in those days, the engineers had to wear the white coat, lab coats, and they weren't, uh, they were instructed not to talk to um, the artists unless the artists um, actually talked to them and they were responding back. So um, I think that's the climate that uh, yeah. was instilled on him at a very early age. And so, and, and it's, it's true. I mean, nobody really necessarily cares about who engineered an album. I mean, if you really, uh, if you really sort of like your you know, just really that much into music, you're going to look and you're going to say, oh, it's interesting that this that this person did it. Or, you know, er, um, like Eric from 10CC produced and engineered it at Strawberry Studios or something like mm-hmm. that. But, you know, engineers are kind of like unsung heroes in general. Yeah, and a lot of the engineers I interviewed who were working back in the 50s and 60s have griped about the fact that, you know, the producer got a lot of the credit for the work that they did. In fact, you know, some of them, I won't name them here, but said to me that, you know, the production credit should have actually been theirs because in some cases the producer wasn't even in the studio. Uh, you know, so, uh, but they were like the head of A&R and, you know, and, and they had the title and they had, had the clout to do that. Something else that, you know, Jeff is from that era, and this was something that he did confirm to me, like a lot of other engineers from the 50s and 60s, that he felt that, you know, in those days where they had limited technology, only a few, you know, a few sort of tricks that they could perform in the studio, found that way more interesting and exciting than having everything at, you know, the end of your fingertip. You just press a button to create any sound. Love the fact that, you know, they had to be creative and innovative in, in coming up with stuff, especially like for the Beatles when they're asking for these sounds. And it's like, well, how do we contrive that? Whereas now it would be a lot simpler. Yeah, I've heard a bunch of them. Uh, I, I know a guy that a guy that helped out on Eight Days uh, used to work with Shadow Morton in New York, and and we had a long talk about that one night about the the search for the one unique sound per record. And uh, any anybody you speak with from that era who worked, you know, has that kind of faraway look in their eye when they when they talk about those days, as opposed as you say, just calling it up as you know an outboard effect or something. Uh, I, I've been meaning to ask you guys. When did recording managers become producers? Yeah, like you're, you're, are you saying that like back in the days, uh, the early days, uh, producers' were, main job was to just watch the clock and make sure that they didn't go over and, and spend too much of the record company's money. Yeah, that was like Steve Scholes at RCA with Elvis in the 50s. That was very much his yeah. job. Well, it's yeah. partially that, but partially even in the Beatles' career, if you listen in the early interviews, uh, they always refer to George Martin as their recording manager. And then at a certain point, he becomes known as their producer. I was just wondering where, I, I don't actually know where the line of demarcation is. And I'm just wondering, the larger point being that maybe uh, the uh, the concept of the hierarchy in the studio, a, a producer and then the engineers and the technicians and stuff, that just really wasn't in the public consciousness. You know, I guess it's around 67, 68, where, where Jeff gets his first... Uh, mention on a record that maybe that's where it suddenly became kind of known to the public. Oh, there's there's people besides the musicians helping to shape this sound. Well, that's right, because they're, you know, people at this point, the engineers, you know, with the rest of the crew, they're painting sound pictures, right? And uh, the industry has to catch up with that. And so there's the public. It's a bit like, you know, King Kong never won the Oscar for special effects because there wasn't one until the following year as a result of King Kong. <laughs> 
Yeah, I mean, it's really just a matter of the fact that um, that the tech, tech, as technology advanced, um, the, the roles of producers and engineers became um, that they just got more involved all, overall. So eventually, it just got to the point where a, a producer would start uh, offering musical suggestions because they just had they had more tools to to use or more colors to paint with. So I think we'll play out with the track that Jeff himself in interviews said was his favourite of the songs that he worked on with the Beatles, A Day in the Life. The mic on the piano quite low, this, just to keep it in like maracas, you know, those old pianos. Fell out of bed, dragged a comb across my head. Found my way downstairs and drank a cup. And looking up, I noticed I was late. <laughs> Found my coat and grabbed my hat. Made the bus in seconds flat. Found my way upstairs and had a smoke. And somebody spoke and I went into a dream. I- 
Lancashire And though the holes were rather small They had to count them all Now they know how many holes it takes to fill the Albert Hall I'd love to turn The Beatles, Naked. Post-production by Richard Buskin. Theme music by Craig Bartow. Dying the life. This is take eight, and it's the choir for the end. Choir? Eight. Okay. Eight beats. Beats then. Just like count eight. As soon as you say. Um. Right. Just stop on it. The eighth one. And I'm going to try and remember. Eight. You lead it. Come on, we'll all subconsciously oh, yeah. okay. okay. follow the leader. Okay. What's the note then, girl? Shall we just all check? Mm. One, two, three, four. Oh. 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 Uh, eight. Take nine. Eight. Okay, I think we're ready to do it. Take nine. Okay. Isn't that it? Yeah. All right. Ready? Now you don't have to check the note. Check the note. Stop freaking out, Mrs. Oh. Um. 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 